It is my great pleasure tonight to welcome Dr. Enrique Galvez to St. John's College. Professor Galvez received his PhD in physics from the University of Notre Dame on spectroscopic tests of relativistic and quantum electrodynamic effects in two electron ions. <laughs> he is currently the Charles A. Dana Professor of Physics and Astronomy at Colgate University in Hamilton, New York. He is the author of numerous publications on quantum optics, as well as several physics textbooks. We are especially indebted to Dr. Galvez here at St. John's because of his help in the setting up of our quantum optics laboratory for senior lab. He designed, <laughs> he designed the experiments that we currently use in the senior laboratory and trained Mr. Daly and a group of tutors, including myself, during two summer visits, uh, including an alpha immersion program at Colgate University. In addition, Professor Galvez has generously offered advice and assistance, not only in troubleshooting, but in improving the quality of our experiments. Tonight, his lecture is entitled The Quantum Challenge. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Galvez. Thank you very much for the invitation. I'm very happy and honored to be here and such an illustrious uh, college and historic college. Uh, Sorry for the apostrophe. Um, so um, I'm very impressed that uh, we have such a crowd on uh, Friday evening. This time, normally, you already had a glass of wine and thinking TGIF. So, um, so I'm going to tell you uh, about uh, um, this very mysterious uh, aspect of, uh, of physics. Uh, and, this uh, started a few years ago, and um, we've done uh, experiments like uh, um, I was just introduced uh, uh, for education. And the Colgate is a uh, um, liberal arts college uh, in central New York near Syracuse. Um, I have to say that right now, uh, it doesn't look as picturesque as there. It looks more like that. We had quite a snowfall a few days ago. And, um, and then what I'm gonna show you data that we actually took uh, at Colgate that eventually went into publication. So you have there a, a, a long uh, list of students. They're all undergraduate. Colgate doesn't have a graduate program. So what am I gonna tell you about? First, I'm gonna start with light and uh, what is it? And then how quantum mechanics have something to say about light then I'm going to tell, tell you about particles and waves and, and all this good stuff that, uh, that comes along with, uh, with the quantum problem. And then furthermore, I'll tell you about entanglement and other good stuff. So, um, so we'll start with this. Uh, what is light? And then this gentleman uh, said uh, that it was particles. Now, who might that be? Students only. <laughs> who might? Newton. Uh, of course, uh, probably you, you read this. Uh, and uh, he, of course, you probably know that. Many of you know that. Invented uh, calculus, the binomial theorem. Explained the colors of light. 
proposed a corpuscular theory of light to explain refraction. So that was the key point, that, that light was made of corpuscles uh, or, or particles. Uh, but now, th the amazing thing is that this happened during a break from Cambridge University, which closed for 18 months due to a pandemic. Now that sounds familiar. Uh, in those days, it was a plague. And, uh, but then he did all this in that year, and it became known as the miraculous year. And of course, he invented the reflecting telescope, the laws of mechanics, and the universal law of gravitation. And uh, okay, I was when when I do this to my students, they don't know who that gentleman is. So so then I hide the name. Uh, and uh, and then this theory of light remained uh, throughout the 19th century. Okay. Now a little bit about particles. Well. We have here a simulation uh, of a particle bouncing uh, around like a, in a billiard. And uh, what do we know about particles? Well, they're whole. Uh, we know where they are because we can see them. And we know where they're going because uh, uh, in the direction they are traveling. Okay, so then here comes another idea. What about waves? And this was uh, proposed by a different gentleman and then who might that be? Okay, he published this book. I don't know if you, uh, Natural Philosophy and the Mechanical Arts. Okay, okay, how about this, how about this? No, I, I heard it, I heard it. He read, but get this, talk about liberal arts. Uh, he read fluent by two years of age, by 16, he spoke eight languages. By 18, he was a renowned scientist. He made progress deciphering Rosetta Stone. He studied medicine. He invented the concept of kinetic energy and work. That's for the ones that study physics. And uh, developed theories of elasticity, surface tension, and physiological optics. But in 1807, this book, he published an experiment with two slits, which the corpuscular theory of could not explain. So he challenged Newton's view of light, maintaining that it was a wave. <clears throat> and then after numerous works, uh, by the end of the 19th century, it became widely accepted. And that was Thomas Young. And I, I did hear him. Uh, okay. So we have particles, we have waves. Let's see a little bit about what's in it with waves. Well, they're extended. Uh, and then they carry energy. So you could see a simulation of, of uh, imagine dropping little stones in a pond and you see these ripples, and you've all seen that before. Uh, but there's something else about waves, and that is that they show interference. So here I have another. But that, now suppose we, we drop two pebbles at the same time. Something peculiar happens. You see here that there's... Um, we see waves in certain locations, but not in other locations. And that's what's known as interference. So these waves interfere constructively in these little streaks that you see waves, but destructively where you don't see anything. And then here's another demonstration of waves, uh, more uh, 
the kind of things that you can do in, with a computer. So here you have two waves, a couple of wiggles that, that cross each other and they superimpose. And then they just add together or subtract each other. Okay, so those are waves of, well, you could think of, of here water waves, but uh, the same thing happens with light. So you, um, with the right setting, you can produce something like this that we call an interference pattern. And this is what we call fringes. So, so you, it's the same thing that you see here, but with light. And uh, now something that um, I'm gonna show you later is that we want to quantify this uh, pattern of light. And what we do is, uh, you can, can't see very well, but there's a red line here. So we, we cut this uh, uh, picture and then we measure how much light is as a function of this distance. And that's what you see down there. So, so we analyze from a more quantitative perspective and we see these peaks and valleys and then the height of the peaks are the intensity of the light, right? So, so this is an interference pattern corresponding to that. Okay. But then here's another uh, view of light. These are particles, but or waves, but whole. Light are made of whole things. And that was this gentleman. Now, I probably don't need to ask who that person is. Uh, and, uh, and another uh, amazing person, 1905, proposed that the light quantum, that he proposed a light quantum hypothesis, that light consists of finite number of energy quanta. Like light is little packets of energy given by this formula. And he used that to explain some outstanding puzzle in those days called the photoelectric effect. But 1905 was also the second miraculous year because he also published uh, an article that um, showed that atoms existed. At, up to that point, uh, it was believed that atoms existed. Chemists had figured out all that, but there wasn't any tangible proof and then uh, uh, Einstein showed through this process called Brownian motion how little um, pieces of um, pollen in, 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 in a liquid uh, jiggle, and that jiggle is produced by kicks by molecules of the liquid. And that's what's called Brownian motion. And, and then also that same year, he published his theory of relativity. And then of course, that's Albert Einstein. But now, what is amazing is that going back to whole things was received with skepticism. For example, Robert Milliken said, bold, not to say reckless, hypothesis of an electromagnetic light corpuscle of energy, which flies in the face of thoroughly established facts of interference. Indeed, uh, it, it was thought that we were going back to Newton, but it wasn't quite that. Uh, and then later on, Further experiments confirmed this hypothesis, and then Gilbert Lewis uh, coined the name of these packets as photons. <clears throat> okay, and then came quantum mechanics, and uh, the main proponent of, uh, for this was uh, Niels Bohr, and he founded this place called the Institute of Atomic Studies in Copenhagen, and then he connected a bright young scientist uh, Werner Heisenberg from Germany 
and then Erwin Schrodinger from um, uh, Austria, and then Max Born and Paul Dirac from the UK, and all together developed this theory of quantum mechanics that would explain this seeming contradiction between particle and wave. And, uh, <clears throat> and then quantum mechanics got this great exposure to, um, to the world, well, in those cases, to all the other scientists, and that uh, this was a Solvay conference. And then here we have uh, really the dream team for physicists. And uh, so, well, there we have the only woman, who might that be? Mary Curie. And which is kind of disappointing that, that in those days, women had such uh, little opportunities to, to get degrees and also to have, find employment in academia. But, but uh, and then we have all uh, other uh, uh, luminaries, uh, Niels Bohr, Albert Einstein, of course, Heisenberg, Born, Schrodinger, those are the names that I just mentioned, Dirac too. But then you'll have other famous ones, Blank, Bragg, anyway, all the physicists love these names. Uh, Compton and de Broglie and Pauli, yeah. So all are those famous names. Uh, <clears throat> okay, so then what is this quantum mechanics and how does this apply to light? And then this was, uh, um, let's say, explained in a very intuitive way by this gentleman, uh, and this is Richard Feynman, uh, a great American physicist, and so this is how he explained uh, quantum physics. If an event can occur in two or more indistinguishable ways, then the probability of the outcome is the square of the sum of the amplitudes for each case. So the idea is, if you want to calculate how, what's the likelihood of something to happen, and it can happen in two different ways, then if they're indistinguishable, we add the probability of that happening in, in a very strange way uh, by taking the square of these two things. But these two things attached to the two possibilities can, um, can reinforce each other so that the probability is one, or they can cancel each other so that the probability is zero. Now, if the possibilities are distinguishable, then there's no interference, and the probability is a constant. So there you have it, some distinction for, for a quantum way of looking at things and, and a non-quantum way of thinking of things. Okay, so let's look at uh, some situation where there's two possibilities, which is light going through this device, it's called the Mach-Zender interferometer. It has a beam splitter, which means that half of the light goes straight and half gets reflected, and then here's another one. So, so you can think that the light can be split here and redirected here and get recombined here, okay? But now we want to study this quantum aspect of light, so we're gonna send single photons. And, uh, and so, so, so then when, uh, when the arms are nearly the same length and have no distinguishable feature, then the probability in going from here to there it's a superposition, so there, we could have this interference. And, and here's how we can look at it. If one arm is longer than the other by a multiple of the period of the wavelength, 
then there's what we call construct interference. So when, so then we think of the photon now as a wave, and when when the <clears throat> photon comes out, and it looks like this coming from one arm and like this coming the other arm, where these peaks and valleys match, then there's constructive reinforcement, and the probability of coming out from from A to B is one. But if <clears throat> the 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 paths are off by half of, of a period, then there would be some cancellation. And well, <clears throat> for intermediate distances, then you have a formula. Okay, uh, you know, it's after dinner, so you don't want to see many formulas. But this is the formula for the probability. And, and, uh, um, and the thing is that, okay, it's one half, one plus cosine of something, delta, has to do with the difference in paths in the interferometer, but the thing is that if delta, uh, we think of it as an angle, and the angle is zero, cosine of zero is one, one plus one is two, times one half gives you one. But if, if delta is 180 degrees, then cosine of, of that is minus one, one minus one is zero. So there you have it. And then, so the two extremes, and when delta is anywhere in between, then you have somewhere in between. P is between zero and one. But then if the paths are distinguishable, then, then the probability is one half. So here I'm gonna show you a little video uh, that I made showing you that if, if they're off, if, if they're match, then the superposition uh, gets reinforced. If they're off, it gets canceled. Okay. Now, <clears throat> then the next step is, okay, let's go to the lab and do, and do this. And uh, so we need single photons. And uh, it's not that easy to get single photons. So we need to make pairs of photons. And then this process is called spontaneous parametric down conversion. So I'm not going to dwell too much on the details. Basically, one photon comes in and two photons come out. And I'll tell you why we want to do that. And, uh, and then this is the apparatus. Now, most of you are not interested in all the details, but this is uh, a little bit of what we do here, and also in my place, how we do these experiments. They're done uh, with a variety of, of components. It's, it's really a tabletop, and it has all these uh, optics stuff. But uh, basically, here we have one photon comes to a crystal and makes two, and one of them goes to the interferometer that we want to go through, but then the other one goes straight to this detector. So this is how we that know we have single photons, because this one tells us that there's a partner. So when you have these two, that is the clue that you're working with two photons, or that one is going through your apparatus. So that, that's the idea. Okay. Uh, and so then we're gonna go and do the experiment, and then we know what is gonna be the probability, and what we're gonna do is we're gonna change this delta here so we can see this interference. And, um, okay, and, and then, so this is what we do. We change that delta. Uh, of course, we, we do that in an experiment where we, we move a mirror and apply a voltage to some gizmo that pushes the mirror, so that's this scale. 
But what we see is that at some point, we get lots of photons going all the way through. And at some other point, uh, very few. So, so we're scanning this condition for constructive interference and destructive interference of single photons. And uh, now, let me ask this for the students. Uh, okay. Um, now, if delta is equal to pi, so, or 180, so cosine of pi is minus 1, 1 minus 1 is 0, the probability of going to b is 0. So it'll be somewhere here. Where experimentally, you don't go exactly go to 0. There's some experimental in imperfection. But then, if we have uh, uh, very few or no photons, where did they go? They go to C. So if we were to now measure there, then if you calculate, you come out with that the calculation for C has a minus sign here. So of course, when, when this is a maximum, this is a minimum, and when this is a minimum, this is a maximum. And then you do the experiment and you get the complementary situation. And, uh, but now Dirac, uh, some of you in the senior class uh, read about Dirac. Dirac gave this very you know, stunning uh, statement that the photon, each photon only interferes with itself. So he, but along with that is that in B or in C, we detect a whole photon. We don't detect half a photon. We detect a whole photon. So here's, uh, here is uh, the puzzle. The puzzle is that for the photon to go through an interferometer, it has to behave like a wave, or these two arms have to be, have this condition of indistinguishability so that they can produce interference, cancellation, reinforcement, and so on. But then when they're detected, they're detected whole. And uh, okay, and uh, also at any given point, you see uh, photons detected at C, photons detected at B, but they're not the same photon; they're different photons. Okay, so so the next thing I want to do is I'm going to tell you a little bit uh, a variation of this using the polarization of the light. So what is the polarization of the light? So for that we need to think of light uh, as a classical wave, and uh, Strictly speaking, it's an electromagnetic wave, so, the, so it consists of an electric field that oscillates. Uh, electric field is what you have, um, if you haven't taken electricity and magnetism, electric field is what you have. You have a thunderstorm and, uh, and lightning strikes. The lightning strikes because there's a huge electric field from the cloud to, to the ground. And uh, in this case, it's an electric field that oscillates up and down. But then next to it is a magnetic field. What we know about magnetic fields from playing with magnets, this is this invisible thing that pushes one magnet uh, uh, from the other. And uh, so an electromagnetic wave has an electric field and a magnetic field. And they're at right angles to each other, and then that's how they travel. And, but then this wave can oscillate in various orientations. But now having the electric field and the magnetic field together is somewhat confusing. So, so we say every time we have an electric field, we'll, we'll assume that there's also a magnetic field, but we won't worry about it. So, so then you can have 
polarization that is vertical, so the electric field is vertical, or the electric field is horizontal. What is uh, interesting about this is that vertical and horizontal are orthogonal to each other, so you can't express one in terms of the other. They're like mutually exclusive uh, things. There are two distinct possibilities. So with polarization of light, we, we have this property that, that can have two possibilities that are completely different from each other. And uh, another thing about, uh, uh, about light is that if we put polarizers, if we have a polarizer that is vertical and lets vertical polarization go through, if we put another polarizer that is horizontal, then that um, blocks the, polariz the polarized light. But if we put a polarizer at some angle, then part of the light goes through, but the part that goes through has the same orientation of the second polarizer. It's a couple of clues that uh, of something to come. Okay, so now here we have the same experiment, which now we have uh, more like a pictorial view. One photon goes to one detector, the other one goes through the interferometer. But now, this is what we're gonna do. These photons are polarized. They're polarized vertically. <clears throat> and then they go through interferometer, and uh, we do, we, we change that phase, delta, and then we see interference, reinforcement, cancellation. And, uh, okay, that's the same thing we just saw. But look what we're gonna do next. We're going to rotate the polarization in one of the arms so that now it's horizontal. So what'll happen is that then uh, the paths are no longer indistinguishable because if we were to measure the polarization here, uh, we would, if we find horizontal, we know the photon came this way, and we, or if we find vertical, it mean, meant that it came this way. So if the two alternatives, going back to quantum principles, if, if the two possibilities are distinguishable, then there's no interference. So we do the experiment, and we get a, a flat line. There's no interference. Okay, now, now here's a twist. Uh, if we add a polarizer after the interferometer, that is at 45 degrees, then the horizontal becomes diagonal and the vertical also becomes diagonal by that property of polarizers. So all of a sudden, after this polarizer, the, the two polarizations from, let's say, the photon taking any arm will still have the same polarization so that two possibilities are now indistinguishable. And so then there should be interference, and, and there is. But what, what is puzzling about this is that we decide whether we see interference or, or not after the light has gone through the interferometer. It's similar, is counterintuitive, because you would think that uh, the light interferes or not, but we don't decide what it does afterwards. But um, quantum physics has this uh, um, very peculiar way of analyzing problems in that it analyzes the outcome of, of an experiment. It doesn't tell you what happens before it. So you, 
quantum mechanics gives us this answer. It doesn't tell us what happens before. We, it, uh, we are trying to figure things out. Um, but it's always correct. Okay, so this is an experiment that we did recently. Uh, and this is, a, a, we send single photons not to two slits. And uh, well, we don't, <clears throat> normally you, you display an interference pattern in a screen, just like what, what I saw with vertical fringes at the beginning. Uh, but now we want to do it with single photons. So what we do is we, we scan a detector along this line. And when there's, a, when there's constructive interference, we should see lots of photons. Destructive interference, we should see le lesser photons. So uh, that's the apparatus. We had to play some tricks in order to, uh, to get this to work. Uh, and then this is a video of what happens when we're scanning this detector as we go along this line here. So, so now where's the interference? Well, uh, you think about it, the distance from here to here is shorter than the distance from here to here. So that difference in distance uh, produces, changes that delta that you saw earlier. And uh, so at certain positions, that difference in distance is a multiple of, of the wavelength, and you get reinforcement. And at other distance, you, uh, you get destructive interference. So, and then that's what we're seeing right there. Uh, and this is a little sped up, but that's the real thing. Now, another thing that you see with, with uh, with photons is that they don't come out predictably all, uh, you know, one after the other, forming a nice curve. They come at kind of random times, going up and down some, somewhat haphazardly. And that's also a quantum effect, that photons come out at random times, not at, uh, at uh, very regular times. Okay, that keeps going. Then, then the result, we, we, uh, we see this pattern that is very nice, which resembles this thing that I showed you at the beginning. Okay, so uh, now we can also do an, an eraser with this same apparatus. Okay, let me show you that. So this is what we do. We put a polarizer uh, that is aligned at 45 degrees, blocking one slit, and another polarizer at minus 45 degrees, blocking the other slit. And, uh, and then, actually, this is a reticle from the interlab, uh, and uh, we put two polarizers. Actually, we cut a polarizer in half and then put the two halves. And uh, so then, uh, we take a scan and we see uh, that um, it's just a bump, okay? No interference. But of course, the, uh, we know the polarization of each arm and they're orthogonal to each other. So, so we would know from which opening the photon would come. So the situation is distinguishable. It should be no interference. Now we put a polarizer after, and if the polarizer is at plus 45, 
Then it detects the photon coming from, from this slit. If we do, if, an, if we analyze, make the polarizer be minus 45, then we get the photons coming from the other slit, also another bump. But now if we put the polarizer vertical, then we get part one slit and part the other slit. And after the polarizer, the polarization is vertical from both slits, and you get interference patterns. And, uh, okay, and uh, so to explain this, Bohr uh, gave a principle of complementarity, which doesn't satisfy anybody. It says, Photons and matter exhibit wave and particle aspects, but not simultaneously. So we detect them, we, we measure interference uh, when we're looking at the wave aspect, but when we detect them, they, they get detected whole like particles. Um, okay, so, so there's this um, other situation, which is very striking. So uh, let me tell you how this goes. So with the previous setup, you, you start with photons in, in one crystal. Okay, let me see if I can go back. Yeah, remember I was saying that um, the photons that come out are vertically polarized. So yeah, we do that. And, um, but now what we do is we put a second crystal rotated 90 degrees. And we, we make the, the, the photon that comes in uh, such that you can produce with one crystal pairs that are vertically polarized and with the other crystal pairs that are horizontally polarized, okay? That's fine, we have two crystals, right? So we can do that. And then, as it turns out, this, this situation uh, produces uh, photons that come out in a cone. So there you have it. If we put a camera, we can measure that. We get this cone, and, and the photons in, in one, well, this is the cone cut by the plane of the camera. So you see two rings. So then one ring is due to the photons that are, say, horizontally polarized. And then the other one is of the photons that are vertically polarized. And then those photons that are opposite from the center, they are the partners, okay? So this is a, an accumulation of many pairs of photons hitting the, the screen of the camera. But there's something peculiar about this setup is that by tilting this, we can adjust independently the radii of the two circles. What are we gonna do? Well, we adjust so that the, that the, the two cones overlap exactly. And uh, so, so that in here, we have pairs that are horizontally polarized and pairs that are vertically polarized. But now we can't tell which of the two possibilities is because they're on top of each other. It's impossible to tell which one, which of the two possibilities. 
So here's where quantum mechanics comes in and says, well, if the two possibilities are indistinguishable, we are in a superposition of the two possibilities. Now, this, these symbols here come after the rack, uh, but just, um, I, I would not worry about those crazy symbols, but only to say that, that here we get a superposition of two photons being both parallel and both vertical. And this is what's called an entangled state. And then this word was coined by Erwin Shorten. Okay. Okay. So, so a little bit more about this quantum entanglement. Well, there's, uh, there are two properties of quantum entanglement. One is, according to quantum mechanics, one is non-realism. The reality does not exist independent of the observation. Observ observables don't have pre-existing values. What does that mean? And so let's, let's look at that. Uh, so this is our entangled state. So that means that you're in a superposition of being this and that. It's like saying we are here and there. So if you are here and there, you're nowhere, right? So the polarization of the two photons doesn't exist because it's in a superposition of two completely different things. That's the entanglement. And now, the classical way of looking at it is, well, you always have a pair, so maybe what's happening is that half the time they're both horizontal and half the time they're both vertical. But that is not the case. They're in these two uh, situations simultaneously. And you can verify it, that in an experiment where you send one photon through a polarizer and another one through the other polarizer. There comes the, the second striking thing about entanglement, and that is this thing called non-locality, that when you measure, the state snaps into one of the possibilities. So if we measure here and find that one of the photons is horizontal, then the other one has to be horizontal, because the possibilities is that this or that, but for each possibility, they have the same polarization. So if you find here that the photon, this photon is horizontal, immediately the other photon is also horizontal or vertical, vertical. And that is very hard to take. Uh, in fact, a very famous person didn't like that at all. <laughs> and, and, and he called it spooky action at a distance. Uh, if you can pronounce this in German, I can. But that's what the translation is. And, uh, well, of course, even the inventor of relativity, uh, as it turns out that this non-locality doesn't violate relativity. But I can explain that uh, later. Okay. All right. So, um, okay. Let me go. So at the, I mentioned this Solvay conference when you have the dream team of physics. 
right? Uh, and then at that conference, uh, Bohr was the main uh, presenter, um, or let's say uh, proponent of quantum mechanics. And, and then Einstein didn't like it at all. Uh, probability, Einstein liked determinism. And, uh, and then they had uh, legendary discussions. In, in, in that Solvay um, uh, conference, and there were two other uh, conferences. And, um, but then the following thing happened. In 19, this, this is in the 1920s. And then in uh, 1935, Einstein, Podolsky, and Rosen, by that time Einstein was at Princeton. Uh, he had to leave because of World War II. Um, and he was, uh, he was Jewish, and so he couldn't stay in Germany. And uh, <clears throat> then they published this paper, and I, I've heard that uh, seniors get to study this paper, which is pretty awesome. Uh, but what's amazing about this paper is the title is a question, is a question. Can quantum mechanical description of physical reality be considered complete? So he presented a situation that eventually led, that explaining it with quantum mechanics led to a contradiction. So at the end he said, quantum mechanics must be wrong because it can't support this thought experiment. Uh, but then uh, very um, soon after that, Bohr went crazy and, and, and a few months later he published a rebuttal, uh, which some people, believed that it was a reasonable rebuttal, that there was a weakness in Einstein's uh, argument. But then the controversy continued for many years until 1964, uh, where John Bell uh, came up with a laboratory test that could tell the difference between the two possibilities, whether quantum mechanics is right or wrong. And I'm not gonna do the math of this, but I can explain you the gist of it. So the test involves doing measurements with the polarizers, the kind that I mentioned earlier, that photons go here and here, and you have polarizers and detectors. Uh, so you do laboratory measurements on two particles, and then the values that you get go into some inequality, and if the particles are realistic and local, that means that quantum mechanics is not right, then this inequality is satisfied. But if the particles are non-local and non-realistic, so that if, if they behave just like quantum mechanics predicted, uh, then for some range of that parameters, that inequality is violated. And uh, <clears throat> well, the story goes that uh, uh, in 1972, John Clauser, okay, so these, won the Nobel Prize last year. So John Clauser performed a first test in 1972. What is amazing about uh, this story is that in those days, people thought that this was kind of a, a crazy debate, debate about nothing. Uh, because uh, quantum mechanics is, is, is very useful and hasn't been proven wrong, so why question it? And he couldn't get a job, uh, so after uh, getting his PhD, he didn't get an academic position. Uh, but he did, he found a violation, but then people poked holes on it. 
And then in 1982, Alan Espec uh, in France, uh, the L'Ecole Normale, he conf confirmed this violation. And uh, he did it in a very amazing thing, very amazing way, uh, because one, one of the, so for all these tests, there, people were hypothesizing, hypothesizing, well, if I measure here and I get the same answer there, perhaps the photons somehow communicate. And uh, so then Aspect did an experiment where, where uh, the measurement here and measurement there happened so close in time that there was not time for a communication to go from one to the other. But as time went by, people came up with, with other possibilities of failure that they were, call, they were called loopholes. For example, there was a detection loophole. And that is that in these experiments, you, you, you don't detect all the photons. You detect a fraction of the photons. So the idea is, well, what if the photons that you detect are showing the violation, but the ones that you don't detect because of other inefficiencies, those are the ones that eventually would confirm that quantum mechanics is wrong. So, so that was a loophole. And then there were various loopholes. So then in 2015, Anton Zeilinger and many other people, these were huge teams, but one had to get the Nobel Prize. It was Lucky Zeilinger. And then they closed all the loopholes. So now it is confirmed. And uh, what is more, uh, now uh, everybody is trying to use that entanglement as a resource for a, a crazy new technology, the quantum computer. Okay. Okay. So I'm almost done. And uh, so, so back to the lab. So, so this is, uh, um, I wanted to show, share with you uh, one of the things that we've done recently, which was COVID-19 came, so we automated everything. So you have uh, the lab. This is a, actually a lab for violating balance inequalities. And, uh, and you, have, um, you have some gizmo circuit to turn on and off the lasers. Well, first of all, from home, you dial into this computer and then there's a webcam that, that shows you what's happening. And then you can rotate, uh, uh, you, know, you can rotate uh, polarizers and various optical elements. And um, you have all kinds of controls in the computer. And, uh, and then you can measure. Uh, so to, in this case, the Bell violation is that some quantity that eventually you measure has to be less than two, and then you end up measuring 2.8, which is greater than two. Hooray. Mm -hmm. uh, somehow the, the, the experiment uh, has a lot of significance, but experimentally you just do measurements, and then you calculate some number, and then, uh, uh, anyway. So, um, okay. So I'm gonna finish with, uh, with this, Copenhagen or not Copenhagen. So there, um, what happens uh, with this particle wave situation? So the photon goes to the interferometer and then uh, there's one possibility of going here or another possibility going there. And, when, and then the photon gets detected in one place or the other. And uh, 
So the conventional um, uh, view is that the the photon is like a like a wave of possibilities or probabilities that extend all the way to the detectors, but then it it collapses into one detector or the other detector. And that's what is called the Copenhagen interpretation, which many people find that very, very uh, convenient. Uh, that is inconveniently convenient, that, that, that uh, magically the, the, the photon pops into one detector or in the other detector. And there's no equation that tells you how it happens. And, uh, so there are some other interpretations. So, so, so the Copenhagen interpretation is what is called the collapse of the wave function. The photon extends and then pops into one place or another. But then there's another one that has quite a following. Uh, for example, Sean Cor Carroll, that is a, a popular uh, science writer. He's a very uh, big proponent of many worlds interpretation. So the idea is that uh, no, there's no collapse. The, uh, the photon comes out of the, the interferometer, then it, it, it splits, the universe splits into, so then one universe, the photon went to this detector, and then the other universe, it went into that detector. And it, it's hard to put that into equations and into a, a book, but, but a lot of people uh, believe in that. There's another one that, well, here we have the collapse happens very conveniently right before the detector. So then there's another theory that, that collapses are happening all the time. So, so then it's okay to have a collapse because they're happening all the time. Uh, and then there's another one that is uh, one that says that, that there's, uh, um, it, they're all particles and each particle has the wave that goes with it. So if, you, if you're going through the two slits, the particle goes through only one slit, but the wave part of it goes through both slits. That also looks very convenient. But um, uh, that's where we are. Right now, there's a huge debate on this. Most physicists don't want to touch this because they say, why, why are we worrying about this if quantum mechanics works? And then that's the dilemma. Quantum mechanics works, but then what is really happening? And uh, so this is uh, Niels Bohr, and he has this quote. If you're not shocked by quantum mechanics, you do not understand it. Thank you. Thank you.